Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. And this is Scott Parkin, your co-host in Berkeley, California. Joined as always by Bob Bazanko and Niles, Ohio. And I'm very excited. This is kind of the green and red equivalent of the moon landing. We're doing something new tonight. We are broadening our audience. And we are not only going to be sharing audio, but we're also going to be sharing video on our YouTube channel, Green and Red Podcast. It's a little bit of an experiment and it's a little bit of a... Uh, wishful thinking. So um, just, you know, hope you all enjoy it. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while and we've finally gotten around to doing it. Uh, I think, you know, many of you follow us on Facebook and Scott and I have been putting up uh, for several months now um, kind of little write-ups about radical history, kind of in this day in history, we call them radical history moments. And um, we thought it would be kind of fun to actually do one on video because it's a very important event and we're talking about in, in some detail. Yep. And so the, today is a, a momentous anniversary, to say the least. It's the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And we're going to go into a little bit of a a kind of background on that. Uh, And it's a significant date and, you know, we do a lot of radical history here. And so we just want to like kind of talk about it a little bit with, um, with each other so that you all can listen. And so I'm going to let Bob kind of kick it off. Okay. um, Yeah. It's, I mean, really, I think kind of one of the most important historical events of the entire 20th century when the bomb was dropped, a lot of people, policymakers, journalists, historians, referred to it as day one, like the world had started over again. Uh, because, you know, unlike previous weapons, uh, the atomic bomb had the capacity now to destroy, at the time, even the smaller bombs that they used, you know, uh, you know 150,000 people in Hiroshima at one time, whole cities at one time. And there was this potential, which they, they understood to, you know, destroy an entire nation. So wars would be waged differently now. They could be waged instantaneously, spontaneously. You wouldn't necessarily have to mobilize armies and send them to the front. You could destroy who knows what in, in simply a matter of, of hours. And, you know, and they understood that it would become even, you know, more powerful and, and, and with, with different delivery systems. So it's a big deal is, is the point here. It's, it's really a big deal. It, uh, it, it kind of officially ended the Second World War, obviously, and, and that's important as well. But uh, the issue of whether the bomb should have been used, why it was used, I think is still with us and still very important uh, because, you know, nuclear proliferation continues. And, uh, you know, we don't talk about it nearly as much as we did in the, in the Cold War, but it's still kind of a big deal. And I know, Scott, you've um, studied this as much as I have. And it's a really fascinating historical episode with a whole lots of twists and turns in it. And, um, you know, what I thought we'd do is just kind of go over the kind of background to it. And then um, normally we don't do kind of chronologies in history with a lot of dates and timelines, but I think in this particular case, it's kind of useful to do that. Um, Nowadays, if you take surveys or ask people why the atomic bomb was was dropped and whether it should have been, you're going to see overwhelming majorities of people, you know, 75%, 80%, maybe more 
saying that, yes, the United States should have used the atomic bomb to end the war. And they did it um, in order to avoid having to actually continue fighting, especially uh, invading Japan, to have kind of a land war in Japan, which would have been devastating. So the bomb was justifiably used in order to, you know, avoid having to continue fighting and to have this really ugly and really bloody uh, land war in, in, in Asia. And I think for a long time, even to this day, most people still see it that way. And I, I think, you know, you probably, you know, when you talk to people or when you read books, that I think in, unless it's kind of a, a revisionist history, that's kind of the narrative you're going to see. And, and I mean, you know, I think you see it in pop culture as well, you know. Um, so uh, what, I, what I thought we'd do is talk a little bit about that. And uh, I've written a little bit about it. Uh, the, the United States actually began a, a major uh, program to develop uh, atomic weapons uh, at the outset of World War II, called the Manhattan Project, which I believe at the time, wasn't it like the largest government program ever, like one or two, I think $2 billion, which was just absolutely immense. And it was put under military control. The Army had control of the Manhattan Project, uh, Leslie Groves. And um, Britain was brought into it because it was an ally. But then something which I think is important, which is generally left out of the story, is that the Soviet Union was not even though they were allies to the United States as well. So the British and the Americans were working on this. Now, many of the scientists had come from Europe. In the 1930s, as fascism in, in places like Germany, of course, in Italy, became more burdensome and, and more terrifying. A lot of scientists, especially a lot of Jewish scientists, fled. And many went to the Soviet Union, and many came to the United States and, and, to, the, the, and to Britain. And so these were the guys who were kind of, uh, you know, in on the, uh, at, at ground zero. You know, the names are familiar, um, Oppenheimer, uh, Niels Bohr, um, uh, Fermi, uh, Sheldon Cooper, I think was in on it. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and they began this. Now, just jumping ahead, by 1945, and the Germans were also working on an atomic bomb. By 1945, it was clear because all these people had intelligence and surveillance that Germany wasn't really that close, uh, but the U.S. was. And so this is kind of where the, the timeline, I think, becomes kind of important. Um, and, and we'll spend a little bit of time doing that. Now, in, in 1945, in February, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was still alive, still president. And he uh, met at uh, Yalta with Stalin and Churchill. And most of the story about Yalta revolves around uh, decisions made regarding Poland and Germany. But something else really important happened there. Um, at that time, the United States was fighting, uh, officially fighting against Japan. The Soviet Union was not. They weren't officially combatants in the uh, Pacific War yet. And the U.S. wanted them to be. And they, they wanted, the, the goal was to get the Soviet, Stalin and the Soviet Union to declare war on Japan. And, yeah, absolutely. They thought this was critical. And, and we'll talk more about that later. Very critical, actually. And bigger and bigger as the story goes on. Um, yeah, they absolutely wanted the, the, the war in, in the Pacific, you know, in 1943, 1944, it had turned, but it was, you know, you had battles like Iwo Jima and, and Guadalcanal, which were very bloody and, you know, it was a, a different kind of war. And so the U.S. Dust absolutely wanted the Soviet Union to declare war and, and start to, to help uh, against uh, Japan. So at Yalta, and this is in February of 1945, and, and, the, and the dates are actually important here, uh, Stalin agreed, and he said that Three months after the war in Europe ended, the Soviet Union would enter the war against Japan. 
now, you know, later on, we'll talk about that because the calendar is kind of important here. So uh, the Soviet Union would uh, agree at Yalta to enter the war. Now, at the same time, this is in February, March, April, through the spring of 1945, American war planners are, are you know, trying to figure out how to end the war in the Pacific, which is what they do. And they figure out all the contingencies and everything else. Uh, I think what's really important is that one of their first assumptions was that Japan was in desperate shape and wanted out. Um, you know, because we kind of keep hearing, you know, kind of the, the, I think, folklore, I call it narrative, is that, you know, they were flying kamikaze missions and they were going to fight to the last man and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, but the reality was, and, and American war planners understood this, they, they wanted out. They were getting desperate. Um, and in fact, uh, some years ago, not that long ago, a, a Japanese historian named Tiyoshi Hasegawa wrote a book called Racing the Enemy. And he looked at new documents. And what he found out actually was that the Japanese were definitely in desperate shape and they were actually afraid of the Soviet Union more than the United States. They weren't really thinking about an atomic bomb. They feared uh, a Soviet intervention into the war against them. Uh, they uh, would rather, you know, in a sense, you've read John Dower, right? Uh, they would rather lose to the United States than to the Soviet Union right. uh, for obvious reasons, right? Because, you know, you've read Dower, you know, you know, the, the idea, what's the book called? Embracing? There's, there's embracing, there's embracing defeat. Yeah. Which is essentially like, it's about the end of the war and it's about the, what the steps the U S took um, after the war to sort of like build up a, like a liberal capitalist state. Yeah. Uh, partially as, a, as one of the many bulwarks against Stalinism and communism. Yeah. But, but and one of their concerns that he points out is that the, at the, by the end of the war, there were a hundred thousand members of the Japanese communist party. Yeah. Which was and, struck and, here in, in many, both in Japan and the United States. Sure. So, I mean, the, the idea of the Soviet Union intervening in February sounded good, right? Because the war, you know, they weren't sure what was going to happen. But, uh, and these military planners kept saying, well, that's, that's probably going to be decisive. They, they want out. They're afraid of, of Soviet intervention. And then what we found out, you know, not long ago from these new books is that, in fact, they were terrified of Soviet intervention. That was absolutely their greatest fear. They had also been intercepting uh, Japanese messages, the famous uh, magic uh, encryptions. And they learned that, in fact, the Japanese were making overtures toward the Soviet Union because they were not, you know, combatants at that point uh, to try to end this thing. Uh, it's kind of ironic. Um, the U.S. had declared that there would be unconditional surrender, right, to avoid kind of the problems after World War I. And Japan had one major condition, which was to retain uh, Hirohito, the emperor who's a you know, descendant of God. And, uh, you know, that was kind of their one, which they ended up getting anyway, right? Hirohito remained in power, so... But there was a strong push, though, to end the war, all right? So in the spring, U.S. military planners understand the war's not going well for Japan. Japan is desperate. Japan fears Soviet intervention, right? Then on May 8th is VE Day, the war in Europe ended. Now, that's important because Stalin had said three months from VE Day, the Soviet Union would intervene, right? And so jumping forward, what's three months from May? It's August, right? Early August. So Early August. Early August, so you can kind of see where we're heading with this, right? Um, at the same time, these American planners were, if you've ever been in the military or read books about war planning, you come up with all kinds of contingencies. Uh, in the and spring so, of 1945 in April and May, the planning uh, essentially assumed that if there was an invasion of Japan, uh, the earliest date that the United States could launch a limited invasion, like the Ryukyu Islands, would be November of 1945, 
So again, these dates are important. A full invasion of Japan, the mainland, could not occur before January 1st, 1946. They also, as planners do, assumed what the uh, damage would be, and they came up with casualty figures somewhere in the 50,000 range from, a, from an invasion, and that too will be important as we go on. So, as, as the story might change. It could change. Yes, yeah, this is kind of a good detective story, isn't it? It's really kind of fun. When I talk about this, is the only time when I lecture that I actually do this kind of a timeline and thing like that, and it's students, I think, get a kick out of it. It's actually one of the, the more popular things, so, yeah. Um, so anyway, then we're in mid-July, and there had been another meeting scheduled. Now, Franklin Roosevelt died in April, so Harry Truman uh, became president. Truman didn't even know about the atomic bomb until he became president. He, he now has this incredible historical uh, reputation. He's, he's not the brightest bulb, you know. Uh, he's not Trumpian by any means, but uh, he's, he's not the brightest guy. And he's very timid. He's very kind of concerned and, you know, kind of anxious. He, you know, he's had this thrust upon him, right? kind of a, you know, he was kind of a, an accidental vice president, and now he's really an accidental president. So he's preparing for this meeting uh, with Churchill and uh, uh, Stalin, which is kind of terrifying. And it's kind of ironic because, it, it, you know, the meeting was initially scheduled either for late June or early July. I can't remember the precise date. And the United States kept delaying it, right? So, uh, you know, it kept going on and on. And I always make jokes to my class. Truman had a dental appointment and then, you know, he had to go pay his taxes and stuff like that. But they kept delaying it. Finally, uh, they met in mid-July at Potsdam. And uh, weirdly enough, uh, Churchill had lost an election. So uh, like kind of halfway there, he had to leave Clement Attlee's there, which is kind of not really that important. But um, Truman met on July 17th with uh, Clement Attlee and, and Stalin after all these delays. Now, this is where it gets to be fun because what happened that very same day in New Mexico? It's when they test the bomb. They tested the bomb at Alamogordo. Yeah. So after all of this stalling, which the United States claimed had, you know, was just, you know, unavoidable and had no meaning, uh, on, on the date that, that Truman arrived at Potsdam to meet with a British and Soviet uh, government, uh, the atomic bomb was successfully tested. And Truman's Secretary of State at the time was a guy named James Byrne from... South Carolina, I think. He late, was he also a later Supreme Court justice, or hadn't he been a, wasn't he a justice of the court or something, too? I think Real he became well one later. He became yeah, a big, big time politician, a real haymaker. And um, Byrne told Truman, now it's kind of funny because Truman was very apprehensive and timid. And as soon as he found out about the bond, he started acting very differently. Vyacheslav uh, uh, Molotov, who was the Soviet uh, foreign minister, uh, got a tongue lashing from Truman. Truman came in and just kind of told him what was what and how it was going to be. And uh, Molotov said, I've never been talked like that before. And Byrne later wrote kind of jokingly, he's like, well, in Texas, you know, we carry our weapons on our hip. And Truman kind of had the biggest weapon of all on his hip now. He had the atomic bomb and it changed his entire demeanor uh, and everything else. I think the, um, quote, the exact quote is to, he described it as carrying the bomb around on his hip. Yeah, like a, like a gun, right? Like a six gun. Uh, yeah. And, and it's like everybody who's written about this has talked about that. So this is in mid-July, right? Uh, so while at Potsdam, Truman received word and he changed his, his, uh, his demeanor, he starts giving ultimatums, uh, ultimatum to the Soviet Union. Then what happened? Well, on 75 years ago, then on August 6th, the United States uh, uh, exploded the, the first atomic bomb on, on Hiroshima. Not a military target. Uh, it, you know, you've seen photos of it absolutely devastated the city, killed about 150,000 people. 
And, uh, you know, the date, the timing, you know, is, is kind of ironic, right? Because now you're at this three-month mark and the Soviet Union was deploying, they were getting ready, they're mobilizing, getting ready to enter the war. And in fact, declared war immediately afterward. I believe it was like October 8th or 9th where Stalin declares war on Japan. August, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it's the 8th. And then on the 9th, there's, there's another bomb at, at Nagasaki. And then uh, I think Japan officially surrendered what was like on the 11th or 12th or something like that. I, I don't remember that. So again, like that timeline I think is useful because you see this, you know, kind of all coming into place. Now, uh, this occurred in uh, August, right? Now, the earliest date for the planners that the U.S. could have launched a, a limited invasion would have been um, November and a full invasion in, in uh, January of 1946. So you're looking, you know, August to November, you still got, you know, three months there, two and a half, three months, uh, where you could have, you know, if you wanted to uh, try to find some kind of diplomatic solution or, you know, let the threat of the Soviet Union work its magic or whatever, but uh, that didn't happen, right? So in the immediate aftermath, that ended the war. Now in the immediate aftermath, and this is what I found striking, and if you're interested in this, there's a lot of good stuff on it, but the person who's done the most work is, and I, I think you've read him too, right? Is Gar Alperovitz. It's a tome. I, I will say that oh, it's over it's a thousand a pages. So I can't say I read it, but I'm, I've <laughs> read about it and I've, yeah. in some reason, I'm very familiar with it. I, I've actually, uh, so it's a fascinating topic and, and Alperovitz has actually put out three or four books on this. And I've probably read every, one of the few times I can say this, I've read every, every word of every page. Um, a lot of people had started, you know, studying this, but Alperovitz is the best known. And, um, and I didn't know this until I started reading him. In the immediate aftermath, when they did polling, uh, Americans were actually very much split on whether the bomb should have been used. There was a great deal of consternation because this was, you know, 150,000 people with one bomb. That's, you know, staggering. I think even today that would be, you know, uh, amazing. Look at, you know, how we're stunned by what happened in Beirut, right? So imagine this is like multiple, you know, uh, you know exponential number of Beirut at the same time. Uh, so Americans were kind of split in polling. Um, the, uh, the kind of National Council of Churches uh, came out with a statement against it. Uh, William Buckley Sr. and other conservatives uh, criticized Truman for using the bomb, right? So it wasn't really that positive. Uh, uh, he was getting criticized. And then, and we'll talk about this later because I think it's also important. Uh, many of his, most of his military advisors, frankly, including people like Eisenhower, Marshall and even Curtis LeMay thought it was unnecessary and provocative. Give us a little background on Curtis LeMay. He's in particular, it's, <laughs> it's interesting that he is one who was cautious. Yeah, absolutely. Curtis LeMay, uh, he's from Ohio. He's from Ohio State, actually. There is a Curtis LeMay chair in military history in the Ohio State History Department. Um, he was uh, kind of one of the uh, gurus of air war in the United States. Uh, air war had become popular like in the 1920s. And LeMay was the head of the Army Air Corps before there was a, an independent air force. So in, in World War II, it was the army doing all the, the uh, air, air attacks. And uh, LeMay uh, was the Air Force Chief of Staff during Vietnam, who, you know, uh, at, at some point said, let's blow them off the map, you know, let's turn Vietnam into a parking lot, but also actually thought Vietnam was problematic too. But LeMay, LeMay was also the architect. There was actually some pretty brutal firebombing of like Tokyo uh, in yes. 1945 before they dropped the bomb, which is one of the reasons they think that the Japanese were like, looking for a way out of the surrender, but like LeMay was the architect of that firebombing campaign. In, in fact, and, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because in both Tokyo and in Dresden in Germany, they were using napalm, you know, napalm is a gaseous gel. So what they would do is they drop these bombs and then they'd explode and then the, the you know, the gas would hit them and, the, and they'd create these firestorms. 
And Dresden and, and Tokyo were probably hit, you know, in many ways worse than, than Hiroshima and Nagasaki were. And, and, and these are war crimes. There's, there's no doubt about it. And uh, I guess, wasn't LeMay also the uh, uh, archetype for uh, Strangelove? He was the, no, for uh, General Ripper, Jack D. Ripper. Not Jack Ripper, okay. Yeah. okay Strangelove yeah. was Kissinger, or, well, I That's guess right. before Kissinger. But. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I knew he was, you know, kind of part of that, because you can't watch Strangelove and not think of, of LeMay. Um, but even, you know, later on, I found out that these guys were, were really um, concerned about it. In fact, the scientists, before the bomb was even tested, uh, tried to have a meeting with FDR. I believe it was, at, uh, maybe Niels Bohr, I can't remember. Uh, and they said that FDR didn't really want to listen to him. You know, he didn't really care what they had to say. And so the scientists were deeply concerned. Some of them suggested doing like, you know, kind of inviting Japan to Almogordo to show them, you know, what would happen to them if they didn't surrender. But there was some fear that, well, if it doesn't work, then, you know, we kind of look dumb and, and, and all this. Now there, so after the war, then you have this, this, this real, you know, kind of mixed bag in the United States. You have people criticizing it. Public opinion is not necessarily on board. Truman is running for reelection. Uh, things aren't going well. Uh, there's a strike wave. The economy is kind of flat. You have Taft-Hartley. <laughs> um, the Cold War, right, is ratcheting up. Uh, and the United States had become had been an ally of the Soviet Union, and now you know they're claiming that the Soviet Union, the communists, are trying to take over the world and everything else. And and Truman's, you know, kind of uh, not not perceived as a strong leader. And this is, I think, in some ways more interesting than than the actual story of the bomb itself, right? So the story of the bomb we haven't been explicit about it, is that, and, and people like Al Perovitz, and the first actually person I think to, to really go public with this was a British physicist named PMS Blackett, who in the late 50s started writing about this. And I think he may have actually even come up with the phrase that Al Perovitz used, which was atomic diplomacy. And Blackett's contention was that the bomb was not necessary to end the war, that the atomic bomb wasn't used as, as a way to, to destroy or, or cause Japan to surrender, but in fact was directed at who? I'm playing professor here. The Soviet Union. Yep. It was atomic diplomacy. They didn't want now, after February, after imploring the Soviet Union out of the war, by August, the United States, now that it has sole possession of an atomic bomb, doesn't want the Soviet Union to enter the war and uses this atomic bomb to send a clear message to Stalin, right? We have a monopoly on this like really uh, horrific weapon, this incredibly destructive weapon, and um, we will use it you know, and, and you better not get in our way. And Stalin certainly took it that way because, you know, he, he was aware of the bomb through spies. There was a, a network. Uh, so he was aware of it, even though the U.S. had never let him in, you know, even though they were allies, right? It's kind of funny when I've been hearing, you know, lately we've been hearing about these vaccines, right? And who is it? China apparently has spies uh, who are trying to get the, the, the COVID vaccine or something like that. Right. And to me, the real question is, well, why the hell is that secretive? This is like this should be, you know, like a, a, an international, you know, uh, uh, group, you know, working on it together. And that was kind of Stalin's point. Like we're allies. The British knew about it. And you never told me. So uh, this idea then of, of atomic diplomacy, that the bomb was used to, to send a message to the Soviet Union, not necessarily uh, uh, as a way to end the war, because that wasn't really necessary. Japan was in desperate shape. The Soviet Union was about to come in, which the Japanese were terrified of. I mean, you know, would you rather be defeated by the United States and this liberal capitalism or would you rather the Soviet Union come in and tear your infrastructure apart for reparations? Right? So what becomes interesting then, which I think is important, it's kind of interesting is the story is like how we went from that period right after the bomb was used to very quickly a place where 
huge majorities of Americans were now saying, oh, it was a good idea. And, and this is like, you know, the way history is done, I think is very important. It goes back to, you know, that old Orwell thing, right? Whoever controls the past controls the present and, and, and therefore the future. Um, and Truman decided to control the past. And so in, in early 1948, he had one of his younger aides, McDorge Bundy, a name very familiar if you've studied uh, the Vietnam War. And I think he was, was he Henry Stimson's son-in-law or something like that? He was the Secretary of State, maybe very famous statesman. He had some kind of connection there. <clears throat> Bundy drafted an article, which was published, I think, in Harper's, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And it was called, it was, I think, it was Harper's. It was Harper's. And it was like, the, my why I dropped the bomb or something very simple. No, like it's that. actually the decision to, to drop the atomic bomb. It's the same as the, as the, the Al Perovitz title. Okay. Yeah, it's the same and, title. And it, what, what comes out important is Truman talks about how, what an agonizing decision it was, right? He doesn't want people to think he went into this cavalierly and killed all these people for no reason. He thought about it. And then the, the, the kind of money quotes are that he did it in order to avoid a war. And then this is really the important part. He said, which would have killed a million Americans, right? Um, I don't think anybody to this date has, I know Al Perovitz who had a team of researchers working on this. He worked on it for what, 30 years. I don't think anybody's ever come up with a document in which that number of casualties was ever thrown out there. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but it's, a, it's why, why a million, you know? It's, uh, it's, it, it, well, that's a stunning number. It's, it's uh, a stunning number. That, that's actually more casually, like it was only 400, 500,000 Americans which died in the war total. Oh yeah, uh, it was almost two or three times. Yeah, exactly, so. Yeah, or double, yeah. Yeah, so that article which they placed like really abruptly changed everything. Americans now overwhelmingly supported the use of the bomb, thought it was necessary to save a million American lives. And it made Truman appear stronger. And he, he for not just for that reason, but he, he was reelected, right? Um, so the way that history was used was really important. Now, Al Perovitz in the 60s kind of popularized this. His first book was called Atomic Diplomacy in like 1965. And he was part of the new left. He, he's trained as an economist, but he started studying this. And, um, you know, that came out at the same time that people like Gabriel Coco and William Williams and Walter Lefebvre and Lloyd Gardner and, you know, Tomsky were, were writing. And this was like, he was kind of really at the forefront of this kind of revisionist, uh, you know, history of the Cold War. Because the, the narrative of the Cold War was that, you know, the United States was saving the world from the, these brutal communists who were trying to take it over. Alperovitz's work, and particularly the, the big book, the, uh, the Decision to Use the Atomic Bomb, is a, is a real good case study and actually a propaganda campaign. They saw that they were, one, losing the American people, and then two, they were needing to engage the public in supporting like the Cold War, basically what was the Cold War, it's conflict in Greece, it's you know elections in France and Italy, it's things happening all over the world. And so they needed this propaganda campaign to sort of justify it and use the Soviet Union as the sort of villain. Um, it's, it's pretty fascinating. I actually dug up a, a quote by Al Perovitz uh, that came out the 50th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb, which is it was in the New York Times, is what is important is whether when the bomb was used, the president and his top advisors understood that it was not required to avoid a long and costly invasion, as they later, as they later claimed, and as most Americans still believe. And to be really honest, my family, you know, my grandfather and my great-grandfather are both World War II veterans, and my great-grandfather, you know, was on the staff of uh, Joseph Stilwell, who was partially one of, partially involved in the war planning. And my yeah, great-grandfather, I didn't know that. Yeah, my great-grandfather, 
was actually part of the war planning team. And so the story that's been passed down in my family is it was a million Americans were saved because we didn't invade Japan, which is now, you know, complete like propaganda. <laughs> Alperovitz's book is actually, uh, The Decision to Use the Atomic Bomb, it's actually two books. Uh, book one is about the bombing, which we just went over the chronology and all that. And then book two, which I find really fascinating, is actually what you just pointed out. It's this kind of the way that the history was created, the propaganda uh, behind it. And, you know, what I found really striking in that uh, was the, the, the military's opposition to the bomb, as we've talked about before. That's an area I've studied extensively. I wrote a book on the U.S. military uh, criticizing the Vietnam War very, very harshly, in fact. And so the idea that, you know, because we have this, especially on the left, we have this image that, of the military. They're all a bunch of like crackpot, you know, killer, and, and, and some of them are. Uh, but um, these guys, you know, they understood, I think, that the nature of war far better than civilians like Truman did. And so Eisenhower, George Marshall, uh, LeMay, the, uh, the admiral who was FDR's uh, main aide, I can't remember his name now, Leahy, all of these guys were pretty clear in opposing the war, it wasn't, and this is kind of similar to what I found in Vietnam, the civilians were far more hawkish and, and aggressive in this particular instance. Now, the propaganda worked, right? Um, Americans bought it, they accepted it, it created even more intense uh, fear and, and hatred of the Soviet Union, it ratcheted up the Cold War, it made it possible to create uh, this massive arms race. The United States developed, uh, the Soviet Union developed uh, its own A-bomb in, I think, 1950. U.S. developed a hydrogen bomb at the same time. I, I should have gotten the numbers. By 1960, just 10 years later, I think the United States had something like 16,000 nuclear weapons, and the Soviet Union had, I think, less than 1,000, something like that. It's just overwhelming capacity. At the same time, Kennedy was talking about a missile gap. And this can all be traced back, I think, to, to the decision to use the atomic bomb. And then the aftermath of it, when they created this history, uh, there's still a lot of good stuff coming out. It's still highly controversial. In 1995, I think, which would have been the 50th anniversary, or maybe it was 1990 for the 45th, it doesn't matter, the Smithsonian was going to put an exhibit up about the atomic bomb. The decision it was, it was bomb. 95. It was 95. So 95 for the 50th. Okay. So, uh, and, you know, if you've ever been in a museum, they have the panels there, which give you the history of it, along with pictures or whatever. And part of the narrative, the script, suggested, it simply said, some people believe that the bomb was used to, as a signal to the Soviet Union. It didn't say that that was the case. It just said some people believe that. Uh, a group of Air Force veterans, some you know, Air Force vets groups went nuts. They ended up like creating such a problem that the, the Smithsonian canceled the entire exhibit, right? So this is still difficult to talk about. Now, if you read the, the scholarship on it, and I... One area where I've read actually quite a bit, there's a lot of good stuff on this. There's stuff about Stalin and the bomb. There's stuff about the Germans and the bomb, Japan, everything else. People who study this closely, including like the official historians from the, the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, pretty much buy into the Alperovitz, you know, the, the atomic diplomacy argument. I think among people who study it, but in the public, you know, like you said, if you talk to, you know, your grandparents or, you know, somebody who just, you know, whatever, they're going to say it, it saved a million lives. A, a very well-known historian named Paul Fussell, wrote a book called Thank God for the Atomic Bomb based on that. He was, uh, I think he was on a ship where he was afraid he was going to be sent to Japan and he didn't. So Truman saved his life, right? So uh, I, I think, you know, as we, we look back on this in the 75th anniversary of the atomic bomb, um, these are really important lessons. And I think some people may have this vague idea. It's not a conspiracy. 
you know, it's not some kind of conspiracy theory. It's, it's policy. It's not, you know, why, why not? Right. If you, if you have the ability to use this to send a message to, to a, a rival country. Um, so I think atomic diplomacy is, is actually become kind of among people who study it. Now there's another interpretation, which is kind of called the momentum argument, which I think makes some sense too. You've just spent a couple billion dollars and four years and you've had the greatest minds ever working on this. You know, you can't not use it, right? It's, you, you can't just stick it in the garage, you know? Um, and then there are others who say, well, even though it was horrific, it was a good deterrent. You know, since then, no one's using an atomic bomb because they know what will happen if they do, you know, who knows? Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's important to, to, to talk about this. And especially, I think, the, the story behind it, you know, how this history was created. Uh, and and Alperovitz is very good good on that. He's, he's outstanding. It's it's a slog. It's a lot of reading, but it's it's good stuff. One thing I'll say, this is just like a, a side note to the propaganda campaign, is that there's actually a new book out called The Beginning of the End, How Hollywood and America uh, Stopped Warring and Loved the Bomb. It's by a journalist and author, Greg Mitchell, who, who's written in The Nation. Uh, it's basically about, there were actually competing scripts and a member of the Manhattan Project who was a chemist named Ed Tompkins, who had actually been a high school teacher, uh, wrote to a former pupil, former pupil who was actress Donna Reed, trying to get this script kind of <laughs> to impress upon the public the horrors of atomic warfare. And then, you know, the the politicians and whoever else got wind of this and it became this sort of competition and the m movie basically got made. It's called The Beginning or the End. And it jettisoned all the scientists' concerns and just basically added all kinds of details and deleted uh, inconvenient facts and bowed to government pressure that basically like, went along with like the Truman, Stimson, Burns, whoever else sort of like propaganda campaign. So it's a brand new book that's just come out this year. Folks should check it out. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I mean, the first movies that were kind of critical were, were like On the Beach and Strange Love. Those were in the early 60s, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was really important in that. But, uh, I mean, the arms race can also be linked to this very clearly, right? Because, you know, the arms race really, you know, is, is, is kind of the X factor in all this. The amount of money spent on weapons, we're talking about mega trillions over the years, was actually directly connected to this story of the atomic bomb. So there's a lot riding on getting that narrative out there. The bomb was necessary. It's a good thing, you know, atomic power. And this is also good with civilian atomic power, right? How it was portrayed as clean energy and this is how we got Three Mile Island and, you know, uh, I forget, what's the plan out your way? Uh, Diablo, Canyon. Diablo Canyon. Yeah. So uh, this is all connected to uh, uh, the events of, of the spring and summer of 1945. Uh, and, you know, when you look at it and, you know, I always tell my students, you know, you, you can make your own mind up about this. But when you look at that narrative, you know, how in February you're saying, OK, you're going to come in in three months. And then the war ends in May, which would make your entry in, in August. And then conveniently, you drop the bomb just as this other country is going to, you know, declare a war. It, you know, so it's it's not a, like I said, it's not a conspiracy. It just it makes it makes a lot of sense. And it's, you know, being done for really, you know, uh, succeeded if you believe in uh, kind of American hegemony and, and the military industrial complex and military Keynesianism in the national security state. And we could talk about this, you know, endlessly, right? Because this is all connected to that, the National Security State, the National Security Act, um, uh, military Keynesianism, the draft, the permanent military economy, a garrison state, the kinds of things we're seeing today, you know, with uh, thugs on the street of Portland, 
uh, aren't, you know, they haven't just been thought of. Those aren't new and original ideas. So um, it's part of the state using its power and its power to create a narrative against people and people's movements. So, um, I, you know, this, this I, I think it's gone well. I hope, I hope you folks, you know, out there watching this, enjoy it. Uh, we'll try to do more of these. So we hope you, you hope you enjoyed seeing us in person. Yeah. Uh, versus well, just Scott, hearing our Scott's voices. good looking. I'm kind of rough. So, <laughs> uh, and, and follow uh, us on all our, our media. You know. Yeah. Yeah. We are Green and Red Podcast. Scott Park and Bob Bizenko. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com backslash green and red. Green Red Podcast. And then, or go to our website and make a donation at greenandredpodcast.org. And it's been great talking with all of you. And we'll talk to you soon.